what are your qualifications? Ah, well, I attended Juilliard. I'm a graduate of the Harvard Business School. I travel quite extensively. I have people skills. I am good at dealing with people. You just don't know when to give up, do you? I could do this all day. The Matt Sodnikar Podcast. All right, welcome to the podcast. Uh, this is Matt Sodnikar. I'm here with Julie Nervelli, founder of White Girl Salsa, which became Winking Girl Foods. And I just thought it was a really cool story of how the salsa came into being and the evolution of the company. So thank you and welcome. Thanks for having me. Sure. So what was the origin of White Girl Salsa? Can you take me through that? Yeah, I lived in California at the time and I didn't care for red salsa very much. And I had green salsa at a party and I liked it. And so I went home and started experimenting with different recipes. And then uh, my Hispanic friends loved my salsa and named it White Girl Salsa. (laughs) So that's how it got its name. (laughs) (laughs) Were you a chef before? Did you cook? Did you have a culinary background, to use a fancy word? No, I actually don't enjoy cooking very much. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Yeah, which... um, We'll get into that later, but some of the products I eventually launched were to help people spend less time cooking because that's what I was looking for, was easy ways to make meals, spending less time. So, but salsa is pretty easy to make. And since I hadn't had green salsa before and I liked it and I didn't like red, it was easy enough to experiment. So why didn't you like, or don't you like red salsa? I like it more now because I've, I now I taste salsa wherever I go, but the red salsa is just tastes like tomatoes pretty much. And, you know, with some variation of flavor, but a tomatillo salsa, tomatillos themselves don't have that much of a flavor. So I like to say they're a good vehicle for lots of cilantro and garlic and onion. So you get a lot more complexity of flavor and not just the overpowering flavor of tomato. And you do like cilantro. I love cilantro. Good. That means you're not evil. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And had you ever experimented with like reverse engineering any other food or was this your first entrepreneurial launch? What, what grabbed you particularly about salsa that you decided to try to figure this out? Well, I love Mexican food. I knew how to make homemade flour tortillas, rice and beans. Yes. And so it was more a love for the food than the actual act of cooking it. And being able to make homemade tortillas that you, you know, they're amazing that you can't get at restaurants. So that's kind of why I enjoyed making the greens also because I love Mexican food. So then when... I had owned a company prior to the salsa company. Oh, what was that one? That was called Get Out Colorado. And so I had lived in Colorado by that time. And I took people on guided day hikes. Um, I did corporate team building and convention services. So when I had my daughter, I sold that company. And then I stayed home with her for a year. And then I had a bunch of business ideas, lots of different things. And when she was about a year old, I knew I wanted to start another business, but I wasn't sure which one. So I did many feasibility studies on several and salsa was the most scalable. 
So that's how I chose to do that. And we def- when you define scalable, is that production? Is that, um, can you put more clarity on what scalable means in terms of how you decided on that? So some of the other businesses were more like lifestyle businesses, like a you know, pottery painting shops were kind of just coming into existence at that time. Um, I think one of my other ideas was a limo company, but to have a really crazy, unique, different kind of car. Okay. <laughs> so um, not very scalable in terms of just being able to grow the business. Right. As one limo, one client, that you need more cars, right? Yeah. Right, exactly. What so, kind of car was it? I don't, I can't remember because it was so long ago. Um yeah, I don't remember. But for 15 years, people, I would take my salsa to parties and people would request that I would bring it. And then people who'd never had it would say, this is the best salsa I've ever had. You should sell it. So that was also part of the reason is just it, I had such a great following of people who really loved it and thought that it was worthy to be sold in stores. So true market research. Right. Yes. <laughs> Yes, but then things changed because my salsa was fresh, but the idea of selling a perishable food product was a little overwhelming for me. So I researched how to get it into a jar, which is basically like canning, Okay. but you have to cook it. You heat it to 180 degrees and that changes the flavor and the color. And so once I started cooking it, it became a completely completely different product and all of my friends who had had fresh white girl salsa tasted this cooked version and said no this isn't this isn't white girl salsa it's not the same was it bad or just different they didn't like it as Mm. much as the fresh so then i started tweaking a little bit to try to i don't to try to make it taste more fresh um by adding lime juice and just trying to make it a little brighter. And then I needed to find audiences who hadn't tasted my fresh salsa to taste this cooked version and kind of give me some feedback on that. So I had friends who worked in large office buildings or hairdressers and things like that. And I would make a batch and then they had a little, a quick, very quick questionnaire for people to say, how would you rank this? Would you buy this over the salsa you currently buy? And the results of that were overwhelmingly positive, much better than I anticipated. So in isolation, the uh, cooked salsa was fine. Yes. If you hadn't had the fresh salsa, people liked the cooked version. Did you ever take fresh salsa into people that had tested the cooked version and see what they thought going backwards? No, I didn't. There's really no relevance to that. Right. And I wasn't closely connected enough with those people to be able to do that. Because it was usually a friend taking it to work or something like that. All right. One question I ask uh, entrepreneurs, and it's because I don't have, um, I have a kind of an engineering mind, but I'll get kind of close enough, 80% on a direction and do some analysis. But just based on a few things you've said, it sounds like you have a lot more detail going into your business plans and your strategy. Is that... Is that how you approach that? Because it sounds, you know, when you decided just based on scalability, mm-hmm. that's something I've never done. It's like, I have this idea, I want to make it work. And I, I do have financials, but 
you definitely had like a further point down the road that you were thinking about and like how how detailed was that analysis in determining on the salsa it wasn't as detailed as you would think I'm, i i don't think at that time i was necessarily planning on building it to a national brand and it was more of um i started as a farmers market business oh. so that first summer I did five farmer's markets a week and sold over 5,000 jars that first summer. So to me, that was sort of a, you know, testing. Well, not only was I testing the flavor, but I was also testing the name because White Girl Salsa in my circle of friends was fun and, you know, it was given, the name was given by my Hispanic friends, but you never know how people are going to react to a name like that. So I had a friend, her husband was a professor at DU in the sociology department. So I asked him about the name and he said, textbook wise, you're making fun of white people for not being able to cook ethnic foods. Sure. So technically it shouldn't be offensive, but when it comes to emotion, there's no predicting if it'll offend people or not. So I took the chance. And was there any pushback? Very, very little. Most people really felt like it was a fun name. And um, especially, it was really interesting because often the people who would get offended would be white people. And they couldn't really say why they were offended. It was just like they felt like something's not right about this. And so I'm going to be offended because it just doesn't sit right with me for some reason. So I've I don't been know. triggered. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then a large majority, I mean, like I said, it was very little, but once they would hear the story of how it got its name, then most people would then be okay with it. But um, we, there were some people that weren't, but I think the positive press I got far outweighed any negativity because most people just thought it was a really fun name. Sure. Well, and it was earned. It was a, a moniker that was given to you. It wasn't created with a focus group. Right. right. Yes. <laughs> you know, and right. you are a white girl. So <laughs> it's, kind of, you know, you know right. it's, yeah, people will find any reason to get upset, I think. Right. And I like the idea of just not taking life so seriously that, you know, you have to be able to have fun and joke and be light about things. Yeah. If they don't get the joke, it's not, you know, if I think if you're not trying to be um, edgy or hurtful and if it's a subtle point and they don't get the joke, well, not everybody's going to get the joke. Right. I've been waiting for pushback for the whole purple nurple thing with (laughs) the warm front, which it's like, and I've, I've got a lot of marketing campaigns that have never gone anywhere because it's like, oh man, because would it be... Could it be perceived as sexist or edgy or um, not erotic, but um, yeah, whatever? And right. I just, I've kind of left those on the shelf for that very reason. Uh-huh. But the fact that a nurple is not a real thing, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like when people talk about, you know, Bert and Ernie, it's like they're puppets. Right. <laughs> okay, yeah. You know, they're not real. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Sorry to uh, sidetrack, but... Um, yeah, I, I think it's comical that anybody could be irritated by that. 
Right. But, and those type of people are just looking for reasons. Yeah. Potentially to just be irritated. I think so. They're the ones going on Facebook and posting, you know, I can't believe you. Right. All the negativity. <laughs> right. Yeah. So 5,000 jars. So you're sourcing the jars. You're cooking the salsa. This is your full-time gig at this point? Actually, this? since my daughter was a year old and... I don't enjoy cooking. I didn't really want to be the manufacturer of the salsa. Okay. So I outsourced that from okay. the very beginning. I never made any. Well, I there are some photos of me assisting making um, salsa. So I assisted in the early days, but then it was completely outsourced. Okay. But we had kettles that I think at that point, 200 gallon kettle was the biggest batch we did wow so i'm trying to picture a 55 gallon drum and so it's four times as big as that yeah essentially it's big right yeah. wow yes and that was here in denver where it was outsourced uh-huh that was um silver state foods it's in the highlands oh cool it's weird because it's in the middle of housing a housing neighborhood and then there's this food manufacturing facility nice. in the highlands so because my passion really is sales and marketing and growing the business. I didn't want to spend my time cooking. And then I would have to put my daughter in daycare and pay for that for me to go cook. So it just didn't really make sense to do that. Yeah, well, it's good to recognize that, right? Because <clears throat> uh, I was reading a book called The E-Myth Revisited, which was talking about getting yourself out of that workflow as fast as you can and focus on the strategy working on the business as opposed to in, in the business right yeah 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 do you think you could have cooked well you, you can't answer that question i was going to ask if you could have cooked five thousand jars worth of salsa but you already said that there's no way yeah that would have been um i was to save money i sourced the ingredients instead of the manufacturer sourcing the hmm. ingredients um so yeah i was definitely in the business more than I never really got out of it as much as I would have liked. I was the whole 10 years in it really working. I mean, I would strategize too, but I was always very involved with every decision and every contact and everything. So I'm trying to figure out how to articulate this. So were you surprised by the growth? at those farmers markets i mean you had tested the product and then was there a point that it was exceeding your expectations for the response of people eating the salsa and liking it definitely so i had i met some people who had a chocolate sauce company so they shared with me how many jars of chocolate sauce they sold at a farmer's market and i thought well you could eat a jar of salsa in a week but maybe you don't eat a jar of chocolate sauce in a week if so, you're not trying right <laughs> i might but not everybody would so i at the time i don't remember but i amped up those projections and then i exceeded those through the sales and it was always really exciting when people would come back the next week and say i loved this and i remember i was doing the dylan farmer's market and this guy came up and bought five jars of the cranberry mango salsa and i said are you giving this as gifts or you know you're buying five jars and he said i eat it by the spoonful i don't even use chips or anything 
<laughs> so that was, it's fun to get that feedback from, sure. from customers directly. So that was really fun to connect with people at the farmer's markets. So the, the initial origin of this podcast was talking to business people and the point where they almost quit or quit and then what got them through and was there ever a point scaling this up that you came close to quitting or or quitting? So I still ask the question, even though the podcast has changed a little bit, especially with the entrepreneur. Definitely. Um, I faced so many challenges and uh, I feel like it's interesting to think about when you're at a decision point of, you know, the food industry is extremely expensive to participate and the distributors take a big cut, the retailers take a big cut, and then you have to spend a lot of money on marketing if you want to, you know, it's a two-step sale process, right? First, you have to convince the retailer to carry the product. Then you have to convince the consumer to get it off the shelf so the retailer sure. continues to keep the product in stock. So just the amount of capital required, um, a couple of times it came down to the wire. And it's what I started to say is it's interesting when you get to that point of, is now the time to throw in the towel or should I dilute more by getting more investment money or, you know, um, personally guarantee this additional loan. And, and I did that many times, you know, it's, you don't want to throw in the towel because you believe in it yet. There's a lot of odds stacked against you. And so, um, but ultimately I did, Really, I sold it, but it was also kind of throwing in the towel because I didn't have access to the resources that I needed to take it to the next level. So, yeah, I did kind of quit <laughs> in a way. Well, <clears throat> that that was one of the fascinating things I wanted to talk about, too, is that um, in our conversations, I've never got the sense that you felt that it was quitting or that it was a failure, right? Because to me, in, in my opinion, the failure would be not starting this at all. Mm -hmm. And so if this was an idea that you look back, you know, now you look back 10 years ago and it's like, you're making the salsa at home for a party. And it's like, I really should have done that. The fact that you took a swing and however it turned out, to me is way more impressive than something that never even got started. And what the endpoint looks like, yeah, it can always be different, but at least you got it going. There's a name out there. You're immortal in some ways, right? There's people that will still think about that. And to me, that's, that's very impressive because I know there's people at coffee shops writing their manuscript that are farting around with Facebook and, they just never do it. So the mm -hmm. fact that you did it, whatever your involvement is now or the endpoint is is really impressive. Thank you. And I learned a lot. It was a great experience overall. Um, you know, being in the business for 10 years, I learned so much. And I did a presentation at a conference in Southern Colorado. And 
someone asked me at the end, so do you feel like you were a failure or a success? And that kind of ties into what you just said is, you know, I grew distribution was over 2000 stores nationwide. So I did accomplish something pretty big and it's hard when you have your sights set on something much bigger than that when you don't reach those goals. So overall, yeah, it was a success, I would say. You know, I I stayed in business for 10 years, which the odds are against that in the first place. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then grew the company, had amazing products that people really enjoyed and was, you know, the products were respected in the industry as being quality products and great branding and a fun brand and all of that. So, yeah. Well, and I had known of you before we even met, probably for, well, sometime in the past 10 years, because I remember being at, um, I think it was a Yeti Betty party because I was in the bike industry and I think I did their clothing and they had salsa there. And I somewhere have one of your stickers (laughs) from 10 years ago. Can I have it? (laughs) (laughs) If I can find it. (laughs) I don't have any (laughs) more. Really? I got a new coffee mug last week and my old one has my sticker on it. Yeah. But no, I'm kidding. And then um, at Denver Startup Week, there was a Colorado section at the Commons on Champa. And so I was looking for all the local companies for either the guests of the show or business opportunities, partnerships, things like that. And I remember seeing the salsa, so I grabbed a sticker and I was like, I, I have heard about this, right? So it was kind of a flashback right there. So it's actually really cool that we finally met because just in the in Colorado and cycling is it's uh just a really cool coincidence yeah and since I'm a mountain biker it made sense I would I sponsored the Yeti Betty's um a couple of other teams you know uh gave prizes for cycle cross races and various things like that so it just made sense to me to plug into my community and donate there and create those connections with those people so well putting a face to a product is always a good thing yeah. And getting it in the hands of people that are social and that will talk about it is a, is a great idea. Yeah. It was a fun way to promote it. So take me through the difference between selling to the distributor and then the, the marketing that goes into the consumer. And the, cause those are two very different customers, like you said, but at the end of it, you still have to get the distributor in the stores to buy it. And you still have to get the customers to buy it. And I'm, fascinated by the difference in that approach and that marketing. Yeah. So kind of, I think one way to illustrate that is sort of just talk about my story and how the growth happened kind of organically. Um, after that summer of selling 5,000 jars of salsa, I reached out to Whole Foods and basically I was inquiring, how does it work? Well, how do you consider a product? I don't, you know, I don't know about that world. And he replied, the buyer replied back and said, just send me your ingredients. And if it's clean, I'll approve it. And I was shocked because everyone talks about how difficult it is to get in. So he must've had it at a farmer's market would be my guess. And so he approved it. And when you're small, you, they just approve you. And then you have to go store to store and convince the store, each store to sell it. 
until you get to a certain size, then you can go back to the region and say, now can you, this is our success in the stores we're in. Now can you force it into all the stores in the region? So the Rocky Mountain region at that time, I think had 35 stores. So um, I went, I got it in one store and then I started demoing the product myself. So I was in the store sampling the product with customers. Then I went to a second store. How did that first meeting go with that first store? Oh, it was, you know, I <clears throat> lucked out because I walked into the store and I said, I just got approved. I, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> can, you know, can someone help me show me the ropes, kind of explain what to do? And they called this guy, Billy, and I'm still friends with him 10 years later. And our kids now go to the same school. And oh, cool. he called two other people into a meeting with me. It was, um, he was the store manager, the grocery manager, plus what Whole Foods calls a specialist, who is the person who actually orders the product. So I got to sit with all three of them and they all gave me all this information of how to be successful and how to connect with customers and connecting with the Whole Foods team members is really important. And um, I was eventually invited by Whole Foods to speak at a vendor conference talking about building relationships with Whole Foods and the team members um, because thanks to those guys, I that was something I did really well. And I ended up with a great reputation for working with them. And one really simple example of that would be those, those guys go to work at four in the morning to start stocking the shelves. Really? And so then when a, someone representing a brand comes in at 10 o'clock in the morning, you know, with their coffee, these guys are tired. They've been up since three o'clock in the morning and you want their time. And their job is to keep the shelves stocked for the customers. So what I started doing is if I walked up to somebody I wanted to talk to and they were stocking the shelf, I would start, I would stock the shelf with them while I was having the conversation with them. So. And not your own product. Not my own product. Just whatever they were working on, I was also putting product on the shelf to help them do their job because if we're going to stand there and talk, I might as well be productive. And I think building those relationships really paid off because at that time, the team members had say over what displays they would do and they could put products on sale sometimes that weren't, didn't necessarily come from the manufacturer. So, um, building those relationships was hugely important. And then the Pearl street location in Boulder, I hold the record for doing the most demos there. <laughs> and how many <laughs> because, was that? Well, when I first got into the store, I did, four demos a week, four weeks in a row. But normally a demo is three hours. I would stay for seven hours. Wow. And because I just really wanted to get the product out there. And then what happened through that, through my dedication of being there, the store manager and I got to know each other. And then he was promoted to the regional office. And then he's now a vice president. So having that relationship from way back then when I was just showing my dedication to the product and trying to connect with consumers and team members and things like that. So I think I got a little off track, but no, that's, um, that's a great story. So then talking about the organic growth. So I started having such success in the four whole food stores I was in 
that in a two week time period, four more stores contacted me and wanted to carry the product. So now I wasn't in a position of me going and asking them to carry it. They were coming to me. And then King Supers came to me and said, we want to carry your product. So they somehow got wind of it in Whole Foods. I'm sure they walk those stores all the time. So um, what was that time span between that first store and then all the Whole Foods and then King Supers? How long was that? Probably. Well, I had an exclusive selling agreement with Whole Foods. Okay. So um, Whole Foods has a loan program. So they'll lend money to vendors. It's a great program. It's called the Local Producer Loan Program. So a lot of times when they loan you money, you know, a brand can show their appreciation by only selling to Whole Foods and not selling to any of the competitors for a certain amount of time. So I think I had an exclusive agreement with Whole Foods for about nine months, which was kind of long. Most people do three or six months, but I just felt like there was so much opportunity to grow my business and those relationships with Whole Foods that I thought it was beneficial And I was a one-woman show, so it's not like I had all these resources to go to multiple retailers. But then eventually went into King Supers. And so that idea of just you were asking about selling to various customers, you know, if you can create the demand in the stores at the customer level, then they go to another store where they shop, then it's much better for the store to be asking you than you to be trying to push it on the store. Oh, for sure. Right. But um, so the distributor is decided upon by the store. So Whole Foods uses one major distributor. Sprouts uses one major distributor. So when you get into a large retailer like Whole Foods or Sprouts, then they tell the distributor, you need to start carrying this product because we're going to carry it. So they have enough muscle to force that to happen basically so then once you're on shelf retailers will require a certain promotion program which is usually that the product's on sale four times a year Um, and then the price point can vary or the way you do those promotions can vary but I mean we all go to the grocery store you know a tag draws your attention to a product and so that's the idea is to get new customers tasting your product when it's on promotion. So going back to you helping stocking the shelves and not your own product, I not once, not once for an instance did I think that that was a tactic. To me, that's a, a value that's instilled in you. And then where did that come from? Because to me, as you're telling me that story and knowing you that That's just you wanting to help somebody do their job. Right. And it it's altruistic because I know you, but where did that come from? Where did that um, operating system come from? I that's a really good question. I, you know, I am very um, in touch with other people and, you know, kind of their situation or what how I do like to be helpful. And so I, I don't know. I just can see people needing help. I don't know where that came from. That's a really good question. My childhood, I guess. <laughs> no, I don't know. Um, 
but yeah, that's definitely describes me for sure. Yeah. And as you were saying that, I was like, that's, I've rolled bikes in and rolled bikes out when I was in the bike industry and they've got to do their job. So they got to set up the store. It's like, I've carried boxes in and it's just, just can't stand there and watch somebody else work. Yeah. Me neither. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think that's part of it too, is that feels uncomfortable to me. <laughs> right. And it almost levels you out. Right. So it's like, we're here together right. doing this as opposed to I'm trying to sell you something or, you know, they're uh, not subservient. I'm at a loss for words on that, but just like they're just some stock person, right? Mm-hmm. It's like you're you're showing sign of respect for their work. Right. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. It's amazing to be in a grocery store for hours and watch the amount of food that goes off the shelf and back on the shelf. And off, I mean, it's a never ending job. It's just it's a revolving door of food. So, um, yeah. And eventually I hired people to do the demos in the stores. And that was one of my big things I was a stickler about is building those relationships, leave it cleaner than you found it. Um, it's called facing when you pull products toward the front of the shelf. So when, you know, when okay. shelves start to look depleted because people have been buying product, some people in Whole Foods, they go around and they pull the product to the front so it looks faced and nice and pretty. So I would train people, face the whole salsa set, not just our stuff. Like, help them. It takes five minutes and it makes the whole set look better. It helps them do their job. Um, so I was a big stickler about building those relationships at the store level. So maybe you could answer this question about grocery stores. <laughs> Why are the the black beans and the pinto beans not with the baked beans? Oh, they're, they're in, in two separate aisles. <laughs> they're in the in the in the Hispanic or ethnic section probably. <clears throat> or the the navy beans, lima beans, all the canned beans. Oh, they're the all hanging beans. out together. I don't eat beans. <laughs> so the dried beans and the canned beans you know, it's interesting how I think it would be fascinating to do a documentary about the food industry and kind of what it takes yeah. to go from idea to ultimately getting it on the shelf. Because um, one thing that your question just made me think of, so there's categories. Salsa is a category. Okay. Cereal, milk, all these categories. And so retailers will review a category once a year, sometimes twice a year. So if you want to get your salsa on shelf, you have to hit the category review. So what they do is they look at everyone who's existing on the shelf, who are the low performers that they're considering dropping, and then who all are quote unquote applying to be included in that set. So that's how they make those decisions. They drop the low performers and then they replace it with something new. Hmm. And, and that's, you know, that's part of the sale you were talking about is how do you convince the store or the retailer that your product should be the new one? Why is it better than what's there? What need is it filling that is not being met? And in my case, I'm still the, well, I don't own the company anymore, but it's still the only line of only green salsas. So every other company would have all red salsas and maybe one or two green salsas. We didn't have any reds. Green salsas were growing. And so when we would go to a retailer with 
we have a line of green salsas mm-hmm. that's unheard of. Um, fun branding, um, white space on the label really popped on the shelf. So it looked different than what was on the shelf. And it was a completely different offering than what was on the shelf. Well, and I asked the question about the beans because um, <clears throat> a long time ago, I was having a uh, attention challenged organizational challenge day when I was at King Supers. And there were two things not going in my favor. They had bro country playing on the speakers. <laughs> not my bro favorite. country. Yeah. Like uh, hey girl, pickup truck, flip flops, cut off, <laughs> spear down by the fishing hole. <laughs> and so I couldn't get that out of my head. <clears throat> and then I couldn't find the beans. I was looking for baked beans or something. And rather than get upset, I was just recognizing that frustration. And I set my little basket down in the middle of the aisle and I just left. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't take it anymore. (laughs) So, um, but back to a serious question. So you had your staff do the facing. Is there sabotage by other reps where they would go in and mess with your stuff and rearrange it, move it. Does that happen? Yes, it does. Um, So a couple things happen. Um, One is it's really surprising to me that the way retailers do the reordering is a totally manual process. They look at the shelf and see that the product is low and then they have a gun and they scan the tag and then they can order more product. So it's not tied to any UPC codes, anything going out the door. No. So... Sometimes tags disappear, and if there's no tag, then the buyer can't memorize every single item that's in the grocery store, so they don't look at the salsa set and go, wait, something's missing here. So when the tags disappear, the product doesn't get reordered. So that happens. And then there can be... It used to happen more when... Whole Foods has gone to a much more centralized system, but before when it was more regional control, you could, products could be moved around. But usually that worked in my favor because I had built great relationships. So I would have eye level placement. um, And then the number of facings you have is how many slots your product takes up. Okay. So I had five flavors. So one facing of each flavor would just be five slots, but I would often have an entire shelf of 12 or 15 facings at eye level. So I never really complained about the products moving around because that um, generally worked in my favor. Is the the food industry male-dominated? Were you an outlier being a a woman-owned business in the food industry? I think that's shifted a lot. It's it's definitely, I would say, the retailers are definitely male heavy. Um, the distributors, I can't really say. I didn't have, you know, you just pretty much interact with a couple of people um, when you have a distributor. But as far as company ownership, I think, I think that's changing. I think 10 years ago or 11 years ago when I started, there were definitely more men um, and I think you see men kind of more in 
larger companies in bigger positions. And I do feel like more women are in that smaller startup entrepreneurial. And, you know, some of that may have to do with being moms and, you know, I don't, I don't know what drives that exactly, but at the retail level, definitely more men. Did that ever pose a problem? Was there ever, um, chauvinistic behavior? I'm not asking you to call anybody out, but did you ever experience that or get a sense of it? Not in that, not in that setting at all. Um, the one time that I experienced it, um, when I got to the point where I was trying to sell my company, I met with a group and I had an advisor and he came to the meeting with me and we were meeting with three men and they would not look at me. They looked at Bill, my advisor, the whole first part of the meeting to the point where Bill became so uncomfortable that he said, I just want to be clear this is Julie's business. I'm just an advisor. And it was just so odd to me that they literally, they would ask him questions and I would answer, but they would look at him the whole time. They didn't even look at me. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, it's crazy. And I'm sure you were introduced as the owner founder of the company. Right. Yeah. And I had met one of them at networking events a couple of times. And the other two it was the first time I had met them, but. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> so after Bill said that, did they get any better or did they just have that? Were they still talking to Bill? They they got a little better. I mean, they still kind of were more <laughs> focused on him. So I don't know. I remember it, uh, when I worked at the bike shop, the Trek actually came in and like, this is how you <clears throat> sell to women. And it wasn't all speeds and feeds and it wasn't all grams and this that right. and the other it was trying to really build a relationship uh-huh. and one of the things i took away is that uh, a, a woman's not dumb she's just uninformed about this particular item like a bike right and or she might not care about the same details a man would care about correct and don't assume that she wants it pink and don't assume that they don't talk down and just really ask more questions. And I think that's the way that you should sell anybody. Mm-hmm. But, to, and again, because it's the bike industry and it's a lot of bros, right? right. <laughs> so we'll start here. This is a woman. <laughs> this is how you talk to a woman. But yeah, it's just, you know, why make it any different than talking to a man, right? Just, I don't know, figure it out. Right. Understand. Yeah. Right. So... The product's now in King Supers, and it's moving. And then what's happening now with the company, with your life? What's going on with all that? So at that point, I did I did the farmer's market a second summer. I was in Whole Foods at that point, not yet King Supers. But my goal at that point to do the farmer's markets was to let my farmer's market customers know that they could buy it in Whole Foods because you really want in order for Whole Foods to keep it, it needs to turn and go off the shelf. So it was really sweet because people would say, I'd rather buy it from you at the farmer's market and you make all the money and which was great. And, you know, people just don't realize that 
you need the sales through the store. So I only did the farmer's market that second year. And then, um, and then it was just sold in Whole Foods and King Supers. And then I think Ralph's in California was maybe my next big chain. Um, and then Sprouts came on and then, oh, we could talk about the name change because sure, a large yeah. retailer, um, had to do with a little bit to do with the name change from white girl to winking girl yes <laughs> oh yes let's get into that okay let's i definitely want to hear that people story. know <laughs> it's so funny how many people ask me did you get sued did something happen <laughs> no nothing happened so i had so part of my business model was really outsourcing as much as i could so i had an outsourced sales team and so that's a lot more affordable than having an in-house salesperson, even one sure. person, because this sales team represented 20 brands. And um, so, you know, I got one twentieth of five people's time <laughs> selling the product. So I had a bunch of ideas for other products besides salsa that I wanted to launch. And they were saying to me, how are you going to make white girl work with these other products? Because... White girl salsa kind of works, but if you're, I mean, it definitely works. But then if you're talking about sauces or, I mean, guacamole might've worked, but it just wasn't as fluid as it was with salsa. And then right about that same time, um, Target had, and again, that was another, Target was another customer that came to me and said, we'd like to review your products. And that doesn't happen that often. Usually you're going to a retailer and asking. And again, I think it was the unique branding and um, the product offering. So Target reviewed it and they came back and said, we love your branding and we love your product, but we will not put white girl salsa on the shelf. Um, so that was around, the, do you remember they had that credit card fraud I don't remember. It was like six years ago, maybe. Oh, yeah. It was right after that. And they got so much bad press from that credit card situation. So they said, we're not we're not going to put it on the shelf. So because of wanting to launch new products that White Girl wasn't necessarily going to work with and because of the high goals I had for the company, I wanted Target as a retailer. So we changed the name. So the White Girl logo was a 50s pinup kind of cowgirl, just her face. And then when we changed the name to Winking Girl, we just made her wink. So it was the same logo, but she was winking. And I had someone ask me once, was she winking when she was white girl or is she just winking now that she's winking girl? (laughs) No, we made her wink. So went back to Target after we changed the name. And, you know, in sales, when you get a no, you never really know the reason why somebody says no. And fortunately they, um, you know, stuck, stuck to their word or what they said. And so they put the products in the Pacific Northwest was never sold in target in Colorado, but it was in the Pacific Northwest. So now I've lost track now of what the the rest of the question was. Uh, it was the expansion. Oh yeah. yeah, Okay. So, um, Got to the point where, you know, we were in over 2,000 stores, um, burning through cash like crazy. That rapid growth um, in a short period of time 
I earlier I mentioned it's really expensive. You know, you basically pay to be on shelf in retailers and what are their terms? So when you sell salsa to the distributor, right? They're waiting for is it the payment from the grocery store to get back to the distributor then back to you? Is that the payment chain? That is the payment chain. Um And what's the timing on that? Well, the sorry, no. The distributor buys the product from you and they they pay you. But the the flow through is when like when you put a product on sale at the mm. grocery store, say it's 50, per, 50 cents off, then that 50 cents goes to the distributor and then that comes back to the brand to pay that 50 cents. But the terms of paying to be on shelf, it varies, but um, there's something called a free fill. So you give one free case of every product that they're going to sell for every store. So that wouldn't be so bad if I was giving that, that to them directly from my warehouse. It would be at my cost plus freight. So it sure. wouldn't be that bad. But it still has to go through the distributor. So the distributor gives the store the free case and then the distributor charges you back for the most money they could have possibly sold that case of product for which they never sell it right. at full price because every retailer has a discount. So it's kind of a scam. Um, so if you, you know, if you think about when I was distributed into Kroger, I think we got into 750 Kroger stores and they took three flavors. So 750 cases times three to fill those stores. It's very expensive at the cost that the distributor could have sold, the highest cost they could have possibly sold the case for. And 24 in a case or 12 in a case? Well, I started with 12 when I didn't know what a free fill was, and then I quickly changed to a case of six. Okay. So you could just give, you want to, you know, have a smaller, a smaller case. Ah. So to give you an example, in that huge growth year I had, my budget for free fills was $160,000 for the growth I was anticipating. Sometimes you can negotiate those. It's not very easy to because someone else is willing to do it if you're not, and that's the game. Right. So cash intensive business. <laughs> so you're, you're essentially making it, giving it away to get the shelf space, to get the presence, to get the sales, to get the exposure, to get the... Um, Right. Paying to give it away. Not just giving it away, paying to give it away. So you've paid twice on that. So you've paid, it's the manufacturing cost. Yeah, you have your cost So of I'm goods. just understanding this now. Okay, so manufacturing cost to make the salsa. Then you pay, you pay retail price to those guys to put it on the shelf? Their wholesale price, yeah. Their oh. full wholesale price. Well, still. Yeah. It's, wow. Yeah. So it was, I mean, roughly. But that's the game. It was like. Roughly $21 a case. Jeez. Yeah. So $160,000 happens oh, very man. quickly. <laughs> so you're growing, you're exploding, but then cash is just burning up? Yes. So oh. cash was burning up. And so I mentioned this flow through of fees from like when you put something on sale that's called a chargeback when you when the brand gets that charge. 
So there's legitimate reasons for chargebacks, but then there's a lot of really questionable chargebacks that are difficult to prove, difficult to fight, difficult to understand. Like what? What would be a questionable chargeback? Well, they could charge you. Tw- they could charge you once legitimately, and then eight months later charge you again for the same thing that they already charged you for. They can um, overcharge you for like a sale price. If you agree that this is a sale price, they can charge you more. They make it really difficult to track. So um, you could be expecting $15,000 payment and it could be $300. There could be so many chargebacks. Wow. Or it could even be you could ha- go into what's called a debit balance where the chargebacks exceed the amount of money they owe you. So you think you're getting a $15,000 check and they say, oh, sorry, your chargebacks are $18,000. You're not getting a check. And you owe us three grand. And you owe us three grand, which <laughs> they'll, t- oh, they'll hold that for a certain period of time and take it off of future orders. But it's they make it so difficult. You can't plan for it. You can't track it. You can't fight it. It's really a challenging situation. So as cash was dwindling quickly and I was getting a lot of chargebacks that I wasn't having any success fighting and I had maximized loans, investment, I I just didn't have access to any more of that. Oh, we didn't talk about launching new products. Anyway. Mm. Well, I should probably talk about that before if we have time because that was... Got all the time. Got all the time. No time limit. (laughs) So that was a really pivotal moment. And going back to what I was talking about at the very beginning of do I keep pressing forward or should I maybe, you know, throw in the towel, the idea of the new products that I wanted to launch to me was really a big game changer in the business. Frontera had come out with these cooking sauces, um, Hispanic cooking, Mexican cooking sauces. And I saw this as a huge opportunity because their ingredients weren't that clean. They were selling like crazy and they tasted okay, but people really loved the convenience of them. And that's where I really liked that idea of having a sauce in a pouch. You could make a meal in a skillet and Frontera didn't really approach those as skillet meals per se. Like their enchilada was roll the enchiladas and put them in the oven. And, you know, it was Mm. kind of a big production. But for me, the focus was this sauce helps you make an entire meal in 15 minutes in a skillet, one pan, and you're done. So I was second to market with those in the natural after Frontera. And to me, when I was going out to investors – I felt like the economics of the sauces were so much better than the salsas because tomatillos are twice as expensive as tomatoes. Mm -hmm. So I was always the most expensive salsa on the shelf competing with all the tomato-based salsas. So the sauces were single use. So that was, you know, people would buy more where a salsa can last quite a long time. Um, I could compete on price because I wasn't using ingredients that were twice as expensive as everyone else. Again, I had great branding, great packaging. Um, So I really thought those sauces were going to be a game changer. And when I first talked to investors, 
about the idea of the sauces, they said, that sounds really cool. Come back and talk to us when you get those launched. So I was able, I got another Whole Foods loan to help launch the sauces, but I got enough money to launch them and not Mm. really spend on marketing them. So I went back to investors and said, look at my sauces. They're great. People love them. The branding's great. The packaging's really bright, stands out on the shelf. And investors said, those are awesome. Let us come back and talk to me when you see how they perform. (laughs) Well, they're going to sit on the shelf because I don't have any marketing money. So, so then I was at this point of making a decision for any dollar I could spend, would I spend it promoting salsa or promoting the sauces? So to me, the sauces were the future of the business and had such better economics than the salsas. I started promoting the sauces with what little money I had and I could. So salsa sales started dropping, of course. Um, The sauces were doing pretty well, but they didn't have a ton of distribution. And then it came to the point where I was really just running out of money completely. So I decided to shift my focus and I was really going to try to build my online sales and focus less on retail because of the chargebacks. They were sinking my ship. So I had about five months of cash left. And then I got a $15,000 chargeback from a distributor. And so I was done. So what happened, I had been talking to people about buying my business because I saw the writing on the wall that I wasn't going to have access to more resources. And buyers were interested to the point of asking me for more information, more financials, clarification on various things. And ultimately, they came back and said, you're not quite big enough for what we're looking for. So that was a dead end. Selling it seemed like a dead end. And so then I got this $15,000 chargeback. And then it was a Sunday night and I talked to my advisors and decided to throw in the towel and close the business. And I would have enough receivables, maybe, if I didn't get more chargebacks, to live off of for three months while I tried to find a job. So that was a Sunday. And then... How was that night? Oh, it was horrible. I The next day, Monday, I laid in bed crying all day. <laughs> so that, it was just, I felt like such a failure and it was not what I had planned. And I just felt like the chargeback situation was so out of my control. And, you know, a lot of people say, if I say the food industry is really tough, well, every industry is tough is, you know, a lot of the response I get, but with the distributors and the way they behave, you have no control over what is happening. And it's well known in the industry that there's some questionable behavior, ethical um, behavior on the part of the distributors. So then Monday was not a good day for me. And then Tuesday morning I woke up and I thought there was interest. The buyers had interest. They just said I wasn't big enough. So for the right situation, maybe somebody would take it off my hands. Um, so I emailed four people, four companies that I had already talked to on that Tuesday morning. And I said, I'm closing down the business. If you have any interest in it, 
I have a meeting next Tuesday with Kroger to present the sauces nationally. And it's not easy to get that kind of a meeting. So I said, if I'm not going to go to that meeting. So if you're interested in my company, then you probably should move kind of quickly because <laughs> that meeting's next week. So three of them emailed back and said they were interested in trying to reach some kind of a deal. So I immediately called my Kroger broker and said, can you buy me more time on the Kroger meeting? My company's being acquired and the buyer wants to come to the meeting. And he said, who's buying it? And of course, I had no idea. I just had three emails saying, yeah, we're interested in having a conversation. Nobody had really committed to anything, but I knew I needed to buy more time on that Kroger meeting. So he called me back and he said, I have good news and bad news. The good news is I got you more time. The bad news is it's only two more days. So oh, now we have until Thursday instead of Tuesday. So out of the three, I eliminated one of them. Just I knew it was going to be too hard to negotiate three deals that quickly. So then the other two, I had offers by Monday. The f so I had meetings with them and then I had an offer, two offers by Monday. Tuesday, negotiated back and forth with each one, picked the one I wanted. Tuesday afternoon, signed a letter of intent, booked our flights to Cincinnati for Wednesday morning, did our presentation, prepared a 35-page presentation for Kroger on the plane and in the hotel lobby that afternoon. And then Thursday, we presented to Kroger. And the broker said it was the best presentation he'd ever seen. <laughs> and I, I attribute that to the the guy who works for the company that bought mine because he was definitely a pro. So that was quite a roller coaster ride. Well, I have, <clears throat> I don't know if you've heard of Parkinson's law, but it's like a task will expand to the time allotted to it. So if you had a month to come up with that presentation, it would have taken a month and it probably would not have been anywhere near as good. But the fact that you had a couple of days to do it. Right. I thought you were going to apply Parkinson's to the time it took me to get offers because having an oh. offer in a week is also unheard of. Oh, is it? So it didn't expand. It contracted. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask about um, how you handled that stress. Do you stay awake at night? Does it keep you awake? Does it affect your guts? Like how did, how did you manage and what does that level of stress do to you personally? That, so I'm a really good sleeper. Stress rarely affects my sleep, mm -hmm. so I'm lucky in that way. Or I should ask, were you stressed throughout Oh my whole? gosh. Yeah, I was so stressed. Okay. It was ridiculous. And what I didn't, well, it definitely affected my body. I know I could just feel lots of tension and stress. And I felt like my fuse was a little shorter than normally would have been. Um, and what I realized having owned that business for 10 years, selling it was such a sad, it was so sad for me. It was, you know, I don't want to, I did not get anywhere near depression. I don't want to say that, but it was, it really affected me. I was very sad. And then when I got beyond that, I was so happy and I just felt like a hmm. huge weight was lifted off my shoulders and the realization of how stressed I had been for 10 years, not under, 
not recognizing that until I was out from underneath the stress. And my daughter even said to me, I mean, she, well, at the time she would have been 10, but she said, mom, why do you act so goofy all the time now? And it was, you know, she didn't equate it with anything. It's just that I was a much lighter, less stressed person because running a company that's always running on fumes without the proper funding and, you know, overworking because I didn't have the money to hire more people and all of that created so much stress. So it was extremely stressful, but then all of a sudden it was like, oh, I am, I've been relieved of this massive burden. Hmm. Was it a huge part of your identity, the company? It was, yeah. And a lot of people equated me with the logo, even though she was not created as an image of me. Um, and then you know, people, lots of people called me white girl forever. I mean, people will <laughs> still call me white girl. Um, so, and it was just such a big part of me. I mean, you know, you don't spend that much time with another person or anything. I mean, it's business and it was all the time. So, um, yeah, so I think that probably had part, part of the sadness was letting go of that how much of me that business had become, I think. Hmm. Well, hearing more details, I'm going to circle back to one of the first things I said, <clears throat> is that hearing the hustle that you had to have to get it to the point that you took it, to me is even more impressive. Because if you had daddy's money or you had a crap ton of uh, capital it'd be easy right mm -hmm. like if you had all the time and all the money in the world you don't have any problems right <laughs> but I think it's even more of a testament to your determination and to your creativity in those solutions that you didn't have the money you're making hard decisions and it still grew and it got as big as it did it's even, to me, even more amazing of a story. Thank you. <laughs> and I'm, I, I'm genuinely sincere in that, in that compliment because, yeah, if you had $40 million in the bank to do this, what's the challenge? Yeah, it would have been a whole different story. Right. Yeah. But the growth and the numbers and, you know, how you do it, I, I'm, I'm so very impressed. It's just... Yeah, hearing these details, it makes the story even more fascinating and more impressive to me. Thanks. Sure. Um, so what's going on now? So now I'm, <laughs> I'm fighting the good fight. Um, I work for a company. I do business development and sales for a company that audits those chargebacks mm. and helps brands recover money. And... It's it's funny because when I first started doing it and brands would be telling me about, we got this chargeback, we're in a debit balance, we don't know what to do, we got this $10,000 chargeback, I, I would jokingly say I'm having PTSD <laughs> talking to you about this. But, um, you know, this didn't exist in the food industry and um, the company I work for had been doing it in other industries. And so when we met, 
I'm basically bringing all these food companies to the table and it didn't exist. And so companies are so excited to have this because it's so difficult to manage. Even large companies. I have clients that are $50 million companies that struggle with this problem and we're able to recover money for them too. So, um, so I really enjoy being on that side of it and helping. It, it's just, it's the perfect job for me now. <laughs> <laughs> Do you wear a cape? Because it sounds like you're a hero. <laughs> I know. Someone told me I'm going to go to heaven when I die. One of the brands <laughs> said that. So Does that happen in um, like outdoor sports? Is that same type of thing with chargebacks? So my understanding is um, retailers do it as well. So okay. like Walmart, Target, when companies sell directly to those, they're they're put in a position of having a little bit too much power. And oh. brands, you know, they might say it's accounting errors, but never in the history ever has there been email to a brand saying, we found an accounting error in your favor. Here's some money back. <laughs> Never, ever has happened. Right. So, you know, that just has to make you wonder um, what's really going on there. But so I don't know the extent in other industries um, specifically. I know more by retailers and not so much by industry. But if there's a distributor involved and a retailer is making a decision Basically, the distributor has a monopoly because Whole Foods dictates this is the distributor we're using. And as a brand, you can't say to that distributor, I don't like the way you do business. I'm going to go use a different distributor because then you won't be in Whole Foods. So the distributor has a monopoly and that's never a good situation. Hmm. <laughs> Wow. <clears throat> well, this has been uh, very cool to hear the inside story of all this and to put a face with that sticker and that salsa that I had <laughs> eight years ago. I have no idea, but it's very cool. And I mean this with all sincerity. It's, it's an impressive story, how you did it with the resources or the limited resources you had. And I genuinely mean it that it may not have turned out exactly how you wanted it to but it was something and that to me is impressive and definitely not a failure to me so i thank you for telling the story thank you for having me and where can people find you to be an angel for brands to <laughs> fix um, those chargebacks yes i'm on linkedin julie nervelli okay yeah i'm the only nervelli all right. I'll put a link to that in the episode. So with that, Julie, thank you so much. Thanks, Matt.